True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to TGC, True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick, and on today's episode, we're going to be looking at the life and murders of one of Toronto's most notorious serial killers, Bruce MacArthur. I chose Bruce MacArthur for this episode because not only is he from my hometown, but it happened while also I was living here. So I feel like I was very aware of the headlines as they came out. Uh, Whenever something is so close to home, you know, it always feels extra scary. I want to take this opportunity right now to introduce to you, if you don't already know, Maluma. Maluma is my eight-month-old, long-haired, red... I never know which order to put this in. Hold on. Red, my, it's a miniature, my miniature dashhound, my, oh, okay, wait, I got it. My long-haired miniature dash, no, where do you put the red? Because he's red. That's his coloring. Hold on, let me start over. I want to take a second to introduce to you, if you don't already know, to Maluma. Now, Maluma is my eight-month-old puppy, and we got him during the pandemic. He's a pandemic puppy. Oh, wait, that's gross. That makes him sound like he's sick. He's not sick. Um, but anyways, uh, I, because I have more time on my hands now, we, th- we wanted to get a dog anyway, and we thought, oh my god, now's the perfect time. So we got Maluma, and he's a miniature dashhound. Uh, he's got long hair, he's got red coloring, and he's super cute. And um, yeah, he's my little podcast buddy. So I just wanted to introduce him to you, because he's going to be with me. He's my sidekick. Um, sometimes he helps me through the process, and sometimes he doesn't. Um, when he's at his best, he is quiet. He shuts the fuck up and lets me work. And then when I'm ready to pet him and play with him, then he's ready. And then we play and cuddle and snuggle. And there's a lot of kisses, and there's a lot of treats, and it's a lot of fun. But there's the flip side of that which is when I'm in the middle of a podcast. And then suddenly, (laughs) oh my God, all you hear on the floor. So you may hear this once in a while during a podcast because, listen, I don't have control. He's in the room with me. So, you know, for for better or for worse, we're basically married. For better or for worse, he's around. So sometimes in a podcast, you might hear on the floor, his nails on the floor. Click, click. So, and, and inevitably, it's going to be at, like, the most tense part of a story or a really detailed part of the story where you're trying to understand or you're trying to piece the puzzle pieces together and, and stuff. It'll be at those times that you'll hear click, 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 click in the background, which actually, if placed in the right part of the story, could be kind of creepy. So, you know, I'll try to work on that with him. Maybe I can, maybe I can train him to just sort of clip-clop across the floor when I need, like, a, a, a scary sound that's, you know, that relates to the story. Yeah, good fucking luck, Patrick. No, that's not going to happen. So, good thing he's cute. Um, puppies are cute for a reason, because it makes it impossible for you to stay mad at them. I love him to pieces, and he's my sidekick. So, anyway, we are um, currently... 
He's in. He's at that age where we're watching for his balls to drop, and they haven't yet, and they have to soon because the thing is, if the balls don't drop, I don't know if you know this. I don't know who has a dog. If you have a dog, let me know. I would love to hear about your dogs. Let me know about your dogs. What are their names? What? How long have you had them? What are their quirks? Okay. Um. So we have to fix Maluma at some point. So we're waiting for his balls to drop. And they haven't yet. And if they don't, like eventually, if they don't, we have to go in. I mean, the procedure is more invasive and, of course, it's more expensive. So we're like, Maluma, can you... So we're on ball watch, basically, right now. I'll keep you posted. Sometimes, like when he's sleeping, he gets super relaxed and then he gets a little boner and then his balls pop out. And then we're like, oh my god, grab the scissors, quick! We're kidding. Kind of. But, you know, you see them. They make an appearance. Like, suddenly there's like these two little nuts there. And then they go away. Because then he wakes up and moves around. And then they pop back inside. And you're like, oh god, come on. Anyway, long story short. I wanted to introduce you to my puppy. Because he means the world to me. And I'll keep you posted on Ball Watch. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And I just finished... Uh, the is it the ripper or just ripper i think it's just ripper nobody uses the it's not the facebook um ripper did you see ripper on netflix it was good it was really well i loved all the footage i love the i love the maps and the faces and stuff and i was really intrigued to kind of discover that this guy was mimicking but of course he does which is not very you know what if you're gonna be like a, a serial killer like have your own spin to it I know that's dark, but you know what I like? Come on, come up with something original, you know? Anyway, the whole, oh, I kill prostitutes. I mean, that's so Victorian, don't you think? I mean, really? And excuse me, we they're called sex workers now. So, yeah, you don't kill prostitutes, you kill sex workers. And your judgment is very outdated. Anyway, that was a silly sidebar, but... Honestly, it was very well done. So if you like true crime, this is like a real one. This guy was like mimicking Jack the Ripper. And it was like in the 70s. Yeah. In the 70s and 80s. Which was kind of... The the dates overlap. So this just goes to show you that there's murders happening everywhere all the time. Like, you don't think about it because you're out walking your dog Maluma and waiting for his balls to drop. Or sorry, that's my story. Or whatever your story is. But, like, there's murders all the time everywhere because that's what occurred to me because they were talking about the dates and the timeline. And then I thought, oh, my God, this is, like, the same time he's up in, like, friggin' Manchester area uh, killing people. David Nilsson is down in London killing other people, you know. Um, that's a future podcast of mine, David Nilsson, so stay tuned. But yeah, the timelines overlap. But of course they do. But it's just, I, I just didn't think about it. And that's just one country. And those are only two people. I'm sure there were other people killing people in England at that time. Never mind globally. So crazy. What's wrong with us? I don't know. Okay. Now, the source that I used for Bruce MacArthur's murder was basically just Wikipedia. Because it is so... The entry for Bruce MacArthur is so in-depth and detailed, I didn't need anything else. So, that's that. Without further ado, let's look at the story of Bruce MacArthur. 
Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur was born October 8th, 1951 in Lindsay, Ontario. And that's just in cottage country, north of Toronto, uh, near the Kawartha Lakes. In addition to raising MacArthur and his sister, his parents fostered troubled children from Toronto, often with six to ten in their care at any given time, and had a good reputation in the area, according to a family friend. This is the second time that we've heard that somebody had a good reputation, so you never know what's going on behind closed doors. And also, they fostered children having six to ten in their care at any given time, MacArthur had trouble accepting his sexual orientation, which was not accepted in rural Ontario at that time, and I dare say probably still not today. MacArthur went to Fenland Falls Secondary School, where he began dating Janice Campbell. Both graduated in 1970. MacArthur later married Campbell when he was just 23 years old. They moved to the surrounding areas of Toronto in 73 and bought a house in Oshawa, which is just east of Toronto. And they had a daughter, Melanie, in 1981, and a son, Todd, in 1986. He became very active in the church, keeping himself busy to avoid examining his homosexual feelings. So we know that this is not going to end well. MacArthur began having sexual affairs with men in the early 1990s, so obviously the church stuff didn't help. Uh, More than a year later, he came out of the closet to his wife, and they remained living together for some time. In 1993, MacArthur's employment came to an end, and the couple faced financial ruin, in part due to the legal issues connected to their teenage son, Todd, who was obsessively making obscene phone calls to women he did not know. So, I guess the apple didn't fall far from the tree there. MacArthur separated from his wife in 1997 and moved to Toronto. He frequented the bars of Church in Wellesley, which is Toronto's gay village, and moved into an apartment on Don Mills Road while pursuing a relationship with a man. When they broke up and his divorce was being finalized, MacArthur saw a psychiatrist and was prescribed Prozac, which obviously didn't help. At about this time, he was attempting to gain work as a landscaper. Now, it's important to remember that part. Landscaper. This is going to come into the story in a very big way later on. In 2001, MacArthur met a male sex worker on a chat line and later had sex with him, as one does. Just after noon, on October 31st, Halloween, a few weeks after his 50th birthday... MacArthur was invited to the man's apartment. MacArthur struck the man several times from behind with an iron pipe that he often carried. That's a weird thing to carry. A knife, maybe, but a pipe seems very heavy. Like, where would you even... Your back pocket? The victim first lost consciousness, then called 911 when he awoke and was taken to St. Michael's Hospital. He, was, he had suffered injuries to his head and body obviously, but he survived. MacArthur, who turned himself in after the attack, said he did not remember the incident or why he may have done it. He pleaded guilty to charges of assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. The Crown Attorney had earlier believed jail time was warranted, but agreed to a conditional sentence after psychiatric and pre-sentencing reports suggested MacArthur was a low risk to re-offend. 
the Crown Attorney had him assessed and said he was low risk to reoffend. So, growing up in Lindsay, Ontario, the neighbors thought the family was great. Then he hits a guy on the back of the head with a lead fucking pipe. And the Crown Attorney's like, nah, nope, he's fine. He's good to go. He won't reoffend. He's cool. Yeah. What? Like warning signs, people. And he had already seen a psychiatrist and was on Prozac. So, in 2002, MacArthur registered with Recon, which is a gay fetish dating website for men into BDSM. So if you don't know, BDSM is bondage, discipline, domination, submission, sadism, and masochism. Masochism. (laughs) Obviously, these are not my things. I can't even say that word. Masochism. Yeah, that's what it is. His profile noted his interest in submissive men. Okay, remember that. MacArthur had developed a reputation for BDSM and rough sex and was active on numerous gay dating websites, including Silver Daddies, Man Jam, Grinder, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, Squirt, and Growler. That's a lot. MacArthur joined Facebook in 2011 and cataloged his nightlife with pictures of parties, vacations, birthday dinners, and concerts. And in the pictures with him, there were always younger men of South Asian or Middle Eastern descent. By this time, MacArthur had become a part of the gay community and was a regular at the bars. Which is scary, because so was I. In 2007-2008, he was living in a 19th floor apartment at Leeside Towers in Thorncliffe Park, which is just east of downtown Toronto, and about 5 kilometers from Church and Wellesley, or the gay village. MacArthur had also become a self-employed landscaper, so mission accomplished for him. He operated under the name Artistic Designs, and a colleague described him as more of a gardener operating out of a little van with old tools. What could be creepier than a man in a beat-up little old van with old tools driving around trimming your bushes? Weirdos. Most of MacArthur's clients were wealthy elderly women who found him charming. Of course, they're always charming. And he had built a client base through personal recommendations. During the off-season, MacArthur portrayed Santa Claus at Agincourt Mall, which is (laughs) described as an old-school mall, which is in Scarborough, east of downtown, and made floral gifts for charities. Can you imagine your child sitting on the lap of this man I mean, when you hear what he did, you would not want your child sitting on his lap. Bit of a side note here. So, um, Bruce MacArthur's son is reported to (laughs) have had difficulty accepting his father as gay. And in 2014, Todd was sentenced to 14 months in jail for making multiple obscene phone calls. I don't know if those two things are related, but it was all noted together. Um... So, obviously, he continued to make these obscene phone calls uh, into his teen years. He started as a kid, and then it just continued on. I wonder what he said to these people. And I wonder if it was random numbers. Like, did he just pick up the phone and just push numbers? And then hope that a woman would answer? Or was he looking in the telephone? Remember telephone books? Yes, I'm that old. Remember telephone books? 
was he opening the telephone book and looking for i don't i don't even know what what that's about um he was released on bail and ordered to stay with his father at his studio uh, Toronto apartment and assist with MacArthur's landscaping business. So I guess that was his punishment to help his dad with the landscaping and to stay with him. But that kind of got creepy because a former friend of Todd's visited one night and he discovered the wall of MacArthur's bathroom was decorated with photos of naked men with erections. He said that most of the men appeared to be Middle, uh, East Indian and that Todd said that they were men whom his father knew. MacArthur did not hide the fact, laughing over it at breakfast. Okay, for me, if I had my son over to my house, I would take down the penis pictures. That's me. But, you know, I'm not a weird landscaper with an old van with old tools that's about to do some really terrible things. Okay, here we go. This is where the police are getting involved. In November 2012... The Toronto Police Services launched a task force dubbed Project Houston into the September 2010 disappearance of Sakandra Navaratnam, believing that he had been murdered but had no leads. By June 2013, Project Houston had identified two other missing person cases linked by geography and lifestyle. Those people were Abdul Basir Faizi and Majid Kaihan. Like Navaratnam, both men were middle-aged immigrants of South Asian origin who disappeared from Church and Wellesley between 2010 and 2012. Of course, I was living in the neighborhood at that time. An anonymous tip linking uh, MacArthur to Navaratnam and Kaihan led the police to interview him in November 2013. MacArthur told police that he had known both men regularly interacting with them, with Navaratnam at a gay bar, but he denied being in a relationship with him, and MacArthur also admitted to employing Kaihan in his sketchy landscaping business, and with, with uh, whom he had broken off a sexual relationship. Project Houston concluded with no evidence to link the disappearances that a crime had been committed or to identify a suspect. I'm finding a lot of times the police are actually so close. You know, the, the, these perpetrators, they usually end up doing little crimes first or being connected in some way to smaller things. And they end up being pulled into a police station for questioning. Or they even end up in court. Um, and then they, they let them go because there's not enough evidence. But it's just shocking because they get so close. And then these people are set free. So it's frustrating. In June 2017, one day after attending Pride Toronto, Andrew Kinsman disappeared from Cabbage Town and was last seen in the area of his residence on Winchester Street. Uh, Cabbage Town is a cute little tree-lined old Victorian houses, lots, lots of children and families. Um, it's expensive actually to live in there now. Uh, the gays have moved in. They're fixing it up. So this is a very like picturesque little community where uh, Andrew lived and has gone missing now. Learning that no one had seen kid Kinsman in a couple of days, friends gained access to his apartment. They found no sign of disturbance, though his 17-year-old cat was out of food and water. They reported Kinsman's disappearance to police the following day, Kinsman, who was openly gay and had deep roots in the community, 
had regard, was regarded as a stable and responsible man. At the end of July 2017, the Toronto Police Services created a new task force called Project PRISM to investigate the disappearances of kinsmen and another man, Selim Essen, and to look for any links with the unsolved disappearances investigated under Project Houston. Kinsman's disappearance was central to the creation of Project PRISM because of a lead obtained at the end of July. According to a statement of facts read in court, police found the name Bruce on Kinsman's calendar for June 26th. I mean, that looks pretty guilty right there. The same day Kinsman was last seen. That day, surveillance video outside Kinsman's residence showed a person matching his appearance approach a red vehicle. The video did not show a license plate or a clear picture of the driver, but was identified as a 2004 Dodge Caravan, which they eventually traced back to MacArthur. On October 3rd, plainclothes police officers arrived at Dom's Auto Parts in Cordes, Ontario, 70 kilometers northeast of Toronto, so bumfuck nowhere. They were looking for MacArthur's 2004 Dodge Caravan, which the new owner, Dominic Viteri, confirmed he had purchased on September 16th. The officers found trace amounts of blood in the vehicle. Wait for it. The blood was identified as Kinsman's. So I'm thinking at this point, you have MacArthur's van. Kinsman is missing. On Kinsman's calendar, he wrote Bruce. And his blood is in the van. Like, I don't... Well, how much more do you need? Again, I'm not a cop. I don't know, but that looks pretty guilty. DNA evidence from MacArthur's van, which matched Kinsman's and Essen. So they found DNA evidence from the two men. They, that, this allowed investigators to obtain a general warrant for MacArthur's apartment on December 4th. Thank God. Police then covertly entered MacArthur's residence and cloned his computer's hard drive. I mean, that's some like CIA shit going on. The investigation picked up in January 2018 when evidence came to light directly connecting MacArthur to the disappearances of Essen and of Kinsman. A partial download from MacArthur's computer, which was going through forensic analysis of deleted files, yielded post-mortem photos of the victims. That looks pretty guilty. Round-the-clock surveillance was then put on MacArthur with instructions that MacArthur should be immediately arrested if observed alone with anyone. Which just goes to show you, just because you delete something uh, doesn't mean it's gone. Police officers surveilling MacArthur apprehended him shortly after they saw a young man enter his Thorncliffe Park apartment on January 18th, 2018. Like, that's two years ago. This is so recent. Believing the man's life was at risk, the police officers found the young man restrained to a bed when they entered MacArthur's apartment. The man was of Middle Eastern descent, having arrived in Canada five years earlier and was married and had not told his family that he was gay. He had met MacArthur through the dating app Growler and said that they had met for sex several times. Can you imagine you're, you're chained to the bed? And you're basically naked and then the police walk in the room? Awkward. But, thank God. He had agreed to let himself be handcuffed to MacArthur's steel bed frame. 
MacArthur put a black bag over his head and tried to tape his mouth shut. Oh, God. Like, this guy was this close to being murdered. Thank God the police showed up. Police seized electronic devices from the apartment, including five cell phones, five computers, three digital cameras, and about a dozen USB flash drives. Photographs of the alleged victims found at MacArthur's residence led to the charges. His computer had grisly photos of his suspected victims kept as trophies. Police were satisfied that there was enough evidence, yeah, okay, finally, for murder convictions, even without the bodies. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of evidence there. Of great concern to, inve- of great concern to investigators were MacArthur's high-rise apartment in Thorncliffe Park and the residence of Leeside, where he did work and kept a shed of tools. So the owners of the Leeside residence were barred from their home on January 18th so that forensic investigators could search it. The search of the property was extended to an adjacent ravine aided by cadaver dogs, which took a strong interest in large planter boxes on January 19th. Police soon announced that they had found the dismembered skeletal remains of at least three people in two planter boxes seized from the Leaside residence. Although the remains had not been identified, police had gathered enough evidence to charge MacArthur with three additional counts of first-degree murder in the presumed deaths of Majid Kaihan, a Project Houston subject, Sarush Mahmoudi, who disappeared in 2015, and Dean Lissowick, a homeless man who was never reported missing. And that's the sad part about, you know, the homeless or the people that fly under the radar, you know, don't have identification or don't have a fixed address and a job. And they're so, they so easily fall through the cracks. And so it's sad. Um, on February 8th, police announced that they had found the remains of three more people in planters from the Leeside home and that one of the six sets of remains belonged to Andrew Kinsman, identified through fingerprints. On February 23rd, MacArthur was charged with a sixth count of first-degree murder in the death of Skandaraj Navaratnam, a, a subject of Project Houston. Navaratnam's remains and those of Mahmoudi were identified through dental records and had been recovered from planters at the Leeside home. On April 11th, MacArthur was charged with a seventh count of first-degree murder in the death of Abdul Basir Faizi, also found in the Leeside planters. MacArthur was, at this point, charged with the deaths of all five men from the Project Houston and Project Prism investigations. On April 16th, MacArthur was charged with an eighth count of first-degree murder in the death of Karishna Kanagaratnam, whose remains were the seventh set identified from the Leeside planters. Kanagaratnam was a Tamil asylum seeker who was under a deportation order and had not been reported missing. Wow. So you become a landscaper so you can hide the bodies or you were a landscaper and thought, hey, I can take this opportunity to hide bodies and planters. Chicken or the egg? Which one came first? I would really love to know. Five victims were noted by investigators for similarities. Middle-aged, bearded, 
patrons of the Black Eagle Bar and self-identified as bears, which we all know bears, right? Um, they also had disappeared over holiday weekends, Navaratnam at Labor Day, Faizi after Christmas, Kaihan during Thanksgiving, Essen on Easter, Kinsman Toronto Pride. And during MacArthur's sentencing hearing, prosecutors said that the eight victims had ties to church in Wellesley and a social life in that community. Physical similarities, which usually included facial hair or a beard, and six were from South Asia or the Middle East. Several of the deceased had characteristics that made them more easily victimized or the crimes easier to conceal, such as moving between temporary residences or keeping aspects of their lives secret. A bunch of these guys were married, they were new immigrants, or even had been here for a while, but their gay life was under the radar. So they were not out. Everything was very secretive, which made them extremely vulnerable. And Bruce MacArthur knew that. Reading from an agreed statement of fact, Crown Attorney Mike Cantlin divulged details of the killings, which took place in Toronto between 2010 and 2017. Each murder was either premeditated or involved other crimes, which qualified them as first degree. Six were sexual in nature, and five included confinement. MacArthur kept trophies from his victims, including jewelry and a notebook. DNA from four of the victims had been found in MacArthur's van. Cantlin then outlined MacArthur's post-offense rituals. MacArthur had hundreds of post-mortem digital photographs of his victims, which were recovered forensically after he tried to delete them. He took staged post-mortem photographs, typically with ropes around their necks or with them nude in a fur coat or hat. Some photographs had them with their heads and beards shaved and he kept their hair in Ziploc bags. Cantlin said that MacArthur sought out and exploited vulnerabilities in his victims that made his crimes difficult to detect, that he used sex to lure them, killing many in his bedroom through ligature strangulation. One photograph even showed a rope around a victim's neck twisted with a metal bar wrapped in tape, a mechanism to control the pressure during strangulation. The bar was found in MacArthur's van and contained the DNA of Kinsman and Essen. Justice McMahon described the crimes as pure evil and stated that MacArthur showed no evidence of remorse and would have continued killing had he not been apprehended. Bruce MacArthur, the 66-year-old self-employed Toronto landscaper whom police arrested on January 18, 2018, pleaded guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder in Ontario Superior Court and was subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. MacArthur could apply for parole when he's 91, but, side note, MacArthur is overweight with type 2 diabetes and is unlikely to live that long. Former homicide detective Mark Mendelson said the investigation would become the largest Toronto has undertaken. Toronto crime journalist James Dubrow said the allegations suggest MacArthur was the deadliest known serial killer in Toronto and the most prolific gay serial killer in Canada. The criminal investigation of MacArthur became the largest ever conducted by the Toronto Police Services and also called, called on the resources of the Ontario Provincial Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Now, 
this whole situation with Bruce MacArthur was riddled with controversies, um, one after another. So I'm going to highlight a few of the controversies that were surrounding this whole mess. The high-profile investigation and media coverage have drawn controversies, including accusations of indifference towards LGBTQ, racialized, and homeless persons. Okay, so there was uh, throwing around the term serial killer became one of the controversies. Police said that they were dealing with an alleged serial killer on January 29th, 2018, confirming what some in the community had feared for years. Some questioned whether police had been taking their concerns seriously. Saunders responded that police were not being coy about community safety. The police knew something was up with the disappearances in Project Houston, and they had hunches of a serial killer operating a church in Wellesley, but that he could not say it without evidence. Toronto Police Services spokesperson Megan Gray noted that while there were theories connecting the disappearances, there was no evidence at that time. So people in the community saw their friends, loved ones, people that they knew out in the clubs disappearing one after another, and they were using the term serial killer. The Toronto Police Services were holding back on using that term until they could connect the crimes together, and then they would be able to use that label. Now, there was a lot of allegations of racism. Gay activists and editorial writers have suggested that police only looked at the disappearances seriously when a white man, who was Andrew Kinsman, was reported missing. Police denied this, noting that Project Houston was a bigger investigation, also noting that Kinsman's disappearance in June 2017 was important to the creation of Project Prism because of the evidence that they obtained in July, not because of his race. It was also suggested that there was racism within the gay community, indicated by the relatively weak responses to the disappearance of the brown-skinned men in contrast with the campaign to find Kinsman. Um, when Kinsman went missing, there was a huge outcry in the community. There were posters. And this is when I personally became aware of the, the situation as it was unfolding. There were posters in the community, literally on lampposts and in bars and clubs. There were Facebook pages. It was all over social media. Um, because Kinsman was so deeply involved in the, in the community as an activist, as a community member, and he's lived in, a, in the community as an outman for so long. So many people knew him that when he went missing, everyone knew about it. Whereas when the other men went missing, very little noise was made about it. And that's why there was the allegations of racism. Um, there have also been suggestions that MacArthur was initially overlooked as a suspect because he's white. It was theorized that the killer was a person of color like the victims because serial killers tend to target familiar communities. There was also a bunch of victim blaming going on. While defending the Project Houston investigation and responding to criticisms that police should have recognized the alleged serial killer sooner, Chief Saunders expressed his frustrations to the Globe and Mail which is a newspaper here in Toronto. He was quoted as saying, we knew that people were missing and we knew we didn't have the right answers, but nobody was coming to us with anything. 
This was run on the front page of the national newspaper on February 27, 2018, under the headline, Toronto Police Chief Says Civilians Failed to Help Investigation into Alleged Serial Killer. The story was widely cited by other media outlets and caused a backlash against Sanders and his comments taken by LGBTQ leaders and the community as victim blaming, which is what it sounds like. And he really put his foot in at that time. He, of course, apologized for his comments um, and said that he was misconstrued or taken in the wrong context, which they always are, aren't they? And that he had not intended to single out the LGBT community. And so ends the horrible reign of Bruce MacArthur, who is now incarcerated and we're safe. Even though, uh, obviously, looking back on all the facts, I don't personally fit his mm, victim profile, it's frightening. I mean, he was living and operating in Toronto. I've been to the Black Eagle uh, one of the victims was seen coming out of Zippers, which is no longer there, but that was a bar that I loved going to. It was a lot of fun. Um, and you just have to think, did I pass these people on the street at any time? Did I cross their paths? The bars, the places, the faces, it's just all so close to home. And, you know, I did this episode now because I mean it's fresh in my mind this happened only a few years ago um, and he was tried and convicted only two years ago uh, this being 2020 that I'm speaking in right now but so it's fresh in my mind and although it happened here you read stories there's things on social media you hear gossip people talking you don't really know the full story until you start to research it and then you get all of the details, you know, how it came to pass, you know, how it got to this point. I remember the controversies in Toronto. The police and the LGBTQ community here are just, were just, and are still at odds. Um, partly because of this. Um, I mean, the community here was up in arms. They really felt unheard. Um, and exposed and unprotected because members of our community kept disappearing. It seemed like every week there was a new murder. Um, there's even some unsolved murders that were not linked to Bruce MacArthur directly, so we don't even know yet who was the perpetrator in those murders. But it seemed like people were just disappearing and people were scared and they wanted answers, and they just felt like they weren't being heard by the Toronto Police Services here. Um, obviously, and if you look at it from the other side, I mean, the police services, they have to be careful in what they say. They can't just go around, you know, with a megaphone saying, there's a serial killer, there's a serial killer, you know, without connecting all the dots and having enough evidence to say that. Um, but that doesn't help you know, the queer community who is losing members uh, of their community and they know something is up. People knew that it was a serial killer. I mean, you know when there's a pattern happening. So it was a scary time. And I just remember the posters around and the controversy, like I said, which continues 
till today, allegations of racism, you know, saying that the brown-skinned victims were, I mean, they looked into the crimes. Obviously, it's a crime. They're police. They need to investigate them. But it was only when Andrew really went missing that it went up. Now, is that true? Or is it because Toronto police found the evidence in Andrew's uh, apartment, namely the calendar, which had Bruce's name on it, circled on the date that Andrew went missing? You know, so the police saying that it's because of that evidence that everything started ramping up and they created Project Prism, um, which did end up including the other men from Project Houston into the um, that investigation as well. So, I mean, the whole thing was just a mess. And to say that, you know, there are there's bad blood between the community here and police is putting it lightly because, I mean, during those times too, Black Lives Matter happened. So um, it's just, and then, and, and, and Pride Toronto asked the Toronto Police Services not to participate in the Pride Parade. That's how hard, it, that's how bad it got. And that's how much bad blood is between the two organizations that, or the two, the, our community LGBTQ community and the Toronto Police Services here, which doesn't make things anything anything easier. But obviously, the system needs fixing. Listen, I'm an optimist. I mean, I do a true gay crime podcast, <laughs> but I'm an optimist. Um, I like to, you know, look to the future, and I see us coming together as a community with the Toronto Police um, and joining forces because. I mean, I truly believe that we need each other. Um, we can't work independently of each other. And we've been through some hard times, but I believe it's through those hard times that we're going to learn to do things better. So I'm proud to be a part of the LGBTQ community here in Toronto. I think that they were right to voice their opinion or to voice their feelings and to speak loudly about what was happening because it was a traumatic experience for our community that we're still dealing with to this day. What I find particularly disturbing about the Bruce MacArthur story is that he's not a killer that crossed somebody's path who was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and then he just lost it and murdered this person. The people that he killed were people in his life for years. Some of them were romantic in nature, some of them like sexual relationships, some of them worked for him in his landscaping business, but these were people that he saw at bars, at clubs, that he knew, that he had a relationship with for years, which is so frightening because for the victim, imagine you trust this person. I mean, you've been sleeping with them for years. You think you know somebody. And so... These people were allowing themselves, obviously, to be vulnerable with this person whom they thought that they knew. And we're not talking days or a couple of dates or weeks. He knew them for years, some of them. Can you imagine building a relationship and knowing somebody like that over a course of years, meeting up with them, hanging out with them at the bar? I mean, the trust that you must build with this person 
lends itself to the fact that they were vulnerable and in a position to be taken advantage of. So that's what I find particularly disturbing about this story is that he, Bruce MacArthur, was able to turn on these people who obviously during the course of their knowing each other, you know, he was kind to them and they liked him. So for him to be able to turn on them like that is particularly frightening to me and shows you how premeditated these murders were. Another thing I I find fascinating about this story is just the scope of the time, the years and years that he was killing people and not getting caught, and also the scope of the police uh, that were getting involved. So from the city level to the provincial level to the federal level with the RCMP, everyone was getting involved in this. So this is a huge case that has finally come to an end. That's the end of the story for Bruce MacArthur. Thank you very much for listening and make sure to tune in next week for a new episode of TGC True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, Tell someone where you're going and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?